The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Deborah Teplow now presents her lecture, The Language of Hope and Science of Change. want to talk today about the language of hope, languaging hope, and designing for change. So um, the question is, why now? Well, hope is a most critical ingredient in any recipe for change, and so we'll look into how to boost hope through the use of language. And once you have hope, then what? Well, how do you make change in your life or help uh, people that you love, that you work with, make change in their lives. I dedicate this talk to the memory of my son who died of an accidental drug overdose 14 weeks ago, and to the memory of my mother who died one week after my son was buried. They were both inspiring to me. They helped me learn a tremendous amount. Um, and I really serve you to honor their memories. So the question, why now? Why now? Why hope? Why language? And why change? So this is the only data slide I will show, and we're not going to study it. On the left side, the causes of death are marked there, um, and that's a um, 2010, the, uh, 2016. So heart disease, cancer, um, let's see, um, road accidents, lower respiratory disease, Alzheimer's, stroke, diabetes. Um, drug overdose, kidney disease, pneumonia, and suicide are all listed on that left column. Heart disease, cancer, um, road accidents, lower respiratory disease take up 70%, that represents 70% of deaths in the US. And yet, when it comes to Google searches, cancer's in yellow, um, that's 37%. Um, people look at road accidents, um, at, people search for suicide, almost 13%. And then as we go to media coverage, you can see the, that there's a shift from what is actually killing us to what people are looking at. Um, terrorism is the red, and you can see as we move towards the right, that's media coverage in the New York Times to media coverage uh, in The Guardian. It shifts from here, um, where cancer, heart disease are what kill us, way over to what we're looking at. Uh, we're consumed with terrorism, homicide, and suicide. So when you look at what's really killing us, you'll see that there it's caused or, or attributable to all things that we mostly can control for. Almost all of the deaths that we suffer have a human component. 
And that suggests that behavior change is the one big factor that can alter the whole story. So what makes behavior change so hard? Well, long ago, and there was uh, somebody who talked earlier this morning about how our brains are wired. One thing that affects our beliefs, our thoughts, our feelings, and which translates into action, is how we evolve. So our brains are capable of amazing things, including keeping us safe. So through evolution, we developed the three distinct areas of the brain. The brain stem common to all animals. It's that part of the brain that we depend on for our most basic survival. It's the part of the brain that governs all autonomic nervous systems, functions, breathing, eating, digesting, responding to threats. So that's part of the brain that um, responds to threats with fight, flight, and freeze. And then we don't have to watch for lions or tigers today. That ancient part of the brain is on duty 24-7, yes, even on Shabbos. So sometimes change is hard because it's unpredictable and uncertain, and danger signals, and it, it signals danger to the vigilant mind. We're also hardwired for laziness, and that is part of our natural drive to conserve energy because until recently in our human history, we had no steady food supply. So like on all animals, we're hardwired to conserve, and it makes us lazy. Um, and after we've said we're hardwired for safety and conserving energy, and our brainstem is always on alert for danger, when we make decisions, we're not always in charge. We may be too impulsive or too deliberate for our own good. One moment we get hot-headed and let our emotions get the better of us, and the next moment we're paralyzed by uncertainty. And then we pull a brilliant decision out of the air and wonder how we possibly did that. So we may, know how, may, we may have no idea of how decision making happens, but neuroscientists are discovering how. Um, one problem is that we get flooded with our emotional reactions and we make them, we feel a certain way and we make the mistake that because we feel a certain way, we are a certain way. And so we, we um, in our attempt um, to interpret our feelings or, or interpret a feeling um, based on what's going on, we then start identifying with the feeling and that leads us astray also. So this is a quote from Rick Hansen, a noted psychologist, who says, our brains have Vel a Teflon for good and Velcro for bad. So um, you can see that ancient part of our brain is still with us. We're always on alert for danger. Uh, we inherited this, but in today's world, generally safer than when we lived in the wild, it means that this hardwired negativity bias tends to make us remember negative experiences more than positive ones, recall insults faster than praise, react more strongly to negative events than equally positive events, think about negative things more frequently than positive, and we make decisions based on negative information more than positive information. We also make the mistake thinking that change happens, you know, all the time, that whenever we think of making a change, we're ready to go. But that's a mistake, because 
we're not always ready. Change happens when people are ready. And this is, this is another data, data um, graphic. How many people are really ready to change at any one time? For those of you who are clinicians, you may recognize this um, as the trans theoretical model of change. It was developed in the 80s by Prochaska and DiClemente, and it indicates that change happens on a continuum from not ready, or what I call is the no way Jose stage, to the all set to go, been doing it, it's just who I am, and I'm maintaining the behavior. So pre-contemplation is, no way Jose, I'm not thinking about it, I'm not really fat, my family's all big boned, or I know, um, I know that smoking is bad for me, but I don't care, I like it. That's the no way Jose pre-contemplation. Contemplation is thinking about it, but I'm weighing the pros and cons. That sounds like I know I need to lose weight, but I hate to diet. Or I know I probably shouldn't drink as much on Shabbos, but what the heck. All right. Um, and so here's a cartoon ready. Yes, but maybe not. Any one time, about 80% of people are in pre-contemplation. I don't really need to change. Not that important. Or, I'm, or they're weighing the pros and cons, and the cons are winning. And so here it is. No, yes, maybe, maybe. And we vacillate. And I like this one. Who wants change? All the hands go up. Who wants to change? Whole different story. Right? Can you identify with that? All right. I have a question right now. Think about your own life. And what change are you, you know you really should do, but like, no way. And I'll give you an example. In my own life, um, I know that I should be washing the kitchen floors more often than I do, which is before Pesach, right? That's what we have. But I don't. I just don't. That's a no way, Jose. Um, I know I should keep my desk tidier, but it takes a lot of time and effort. Um, so I do it occasionally. That is more contemplation. It's a yes, but. So what in your life right now, consider a change that is a yes, but. Yes, I know I should. Yes, I know it would be good for me, but. One thing when I, and so those of you who were with me yesterday, you may recognize a little bit, maybe a repetition. Um, we think, so the solution is what? What do you think the solution is? The yes, but. I know I should exercise, but I'm too tired. I know I should clean my kitchen floor, but oh my gosh, that takes too much effort. Um, there are different kinds of costs. There's physical cost, I'm too tired. There's mental cost, I'm too stressed out. There's time cost, I don't have time. There's too costly, costs too much. or Social deviation. Nobody else I know does it. I'd be laughed out of the group. So um, what do you think is a key factor in making change? One thing, I've asked that question, what's one of the biggest factors that's required for successful change? And invariably, and I've asked this question to probably a thousand people, maybe more, motivation. You have motivation, you have to have self-control, um, you have to have drive, persistence. It all comes down to the same thing. But when we look at what contributes to change, it's not all about motivation. Um, in fact, these 17 factors um, were identified by Hans Mosler 
a, a Swiss researcher who works a lot for NGOs around the world on behavior change and behavior change that makes the difference between life and death for literally millions of people around the world. And it's a lot more than motivation. Many more um, things contribute to successful change. Um, and this is a framework that um, my business partner and I are developing about change um, that helps put all those factors on the map in a simple to understand way. Um, you're at the middle, and there are enabling factors and motivating factors. Um, motivating factors is your purpose in life, your sense of purpose, your sense of meaning, your values. Um, what are enabling factors are deliberate practice, visualizations, even um, having um, models. The people, their enabling factors um, or motivating factors, those are your family and friends. Those are social norms. Enabling factors are classes, coaches, teachers, mentors, rabbis, support and special interest groups. Um, and environmental factors, enabling factors are, well, for instance, a clean desk. Um, motivating factors in environmentally may be the sights and sounds around you, a sense of awe. Things are, uh, a motivating factor in things are, one example is recognition, certificates. We teach hundreds of people um, at my institute, the Institute for Wellness Education, we teach hundreds maybe thousands of people a year, everybody wants certificates. That is a thing, that is a motivating factor. Um, an enabling factor are tools, props, the alarm clock, and even gear. Um, my business partner said, when people take up a sport, often um, an enabling factor is the gear they get, and people like gear, it also is somewhat motivating. We've looked at evolutionary factors that hold us back from change, mistakes about readiness and motivation, Another factor that holds us back is our dependence on quick fixes. And that's because our, that's part of our lazy ancient brain that drives wishful thinking. So what's the solution? Caring person to the rescue. Who here is a caring person professionally? You're a counselor, you're an educator, you're a therapist, you're a parent, you're a grandparent, you're a aunt, an uncle, a friend. So those apply to everybody. We are caring people flying into the rescue. But what happens when we want to help family members or friends? What happens when we're professionals and our job is to help people? Um, we often um, impose change on people or try to impose change on people, hoping that they will adapt. So let's take this case. And uh, this is, uh, my family is always on my case about drinking, about my drinking, and I really don't drink that much, only on Shabbos, Yantif, and at Smahot. Okay, so you are a caring person, jumping into rescue, jumping into help. What do you say? Hey, don't you know drinking's bad for your health? Your family loves you. They, they don't want you to risk your health. They only want what's good for you. You feel your family should respect your decisions. Or, well, it's not as if you're falling down drunk every day. All right, so this is it. What do you think is 
Well, what would be your initial inclination, first of all? Because we have the, 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 the in, initial inclination and we have the more considered. What, what's your first inclination? Who's for an A? And shout it out. And you know what? It won't cost you any more money if you're right or wrong. We don't care. Let's just play. Let's have fun. Who says A? Drinking? Gosh, drinking's bad for your health. Don't you know it? What are you doing? Okay? Who says B? Your family loves you. They don't want you to risk your health. Nobody on B? You're kidding. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, you feel your family should risk your, your decisions. Who's on that? Okay. Um, it's not as if you're falling down drunk every day. Hey, not everybody has voted. Do we have to do this again? Come on, let's get those arms up. Nope, that's it. You got to choose. A, drinking's bad for your health. B, your family loves you. They don't want you to risk your health. All right, you feel your family should respect your decisions. It's not as if you're getting falling down drunk every day. All right, we'll talk about that a little bit. Well, the fact is that unsolicited advice is the junk mail of life. So one thing that holds us back from being effective in helping guide people towards change is our lack of appreciation of how much advice truly fails. Why? Well, for a lot of reasons, but one is autonomy is one of the most critical needs for humans. What is a characteristic, defining characteristic of a two-year-old? Me, I want to do it myself, right? I want to do it myself. Um, and so advice, especially unsolicited, is death for change because it violates a fundamental human need. And what are the reactions to rescues and remedies? You can read the list, you know? People get angry, agitated, oppositional, et cetera, et cetera. So we often are quick to define someone as resistant or in denial. And I want you to take the idea of resistance and denial out of your vocabulary. Because what we know from more modern research is that resistance is a, an interpersonal, interactional phenomenon. People don't resist unless there is something to push against. And that is you and your advice and your concern and your agenda. So advice is what we ask for when we already know the answer, but wish we didn't. So what can we do instead? Hope. Um, and so the, at the heart of change is hope, and it is only in the presence of hope that we can change. Hope, a hopeful people experience improved social, psychological, and physical well-being across the lifespan. And hope gives us zest for life. It helps us persist in the face of adversity. It helps us regulate emotion and behavior. It um, stimulates optimism and appreciation towards others, like gratitude. Um, we are more motivated and curious, and we are more aware of our feelings and uh, motivation for other. So um, this is called Girls in the Field. It's from 1943 by Nellie Toll, Holocaust survivor artist who painted this when she was a teen in hiding. And I want to call your attention to the difference between optimism and hope. Well, there is a difference. 
Optimism tries to de deny what's happening now, and hope is dealing with bad news, but still trying to find the ray of light. And that's a definition from uh, the chaplain of the um, Baylor Cancer Center. In the words of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, he says, no Jew, knowing what we do of the past, of hatred, bloodshed, persecution in the name of God, suppression of human rights in the name of freedom, can be an optimist. But Jews have never given up hope. Hope is one of the greatest Jewish contributions to Western civilization. So much so that I've called Judaism the voice of hope in the conversation of mankind. Judaism is principled rejection of tragedy in the name of hope. These concepts often confused are in utter, fact utterly different. Optimism is the belief that things will get better. Hope is the belief that together we can make things happen, we can make things better. Optimum, optimism is a passive virtue, hope is an active one. It takes courage um, to be an optimist. Um, I'm sorry, it takes no courage to be an optimist. It takes courage to sustain hope. No Jew, knowing what we do of the past, uh, can be an optimist. But Jews have never given up hope. So let's begin with language. Why is language so important? Well, language is the fuel that powers all human interaction, and it's only humans that have the capacity for imagination and creativity through language that enables us to dream, imagine, and create our world. Such dreaming, imagining, and creating is rooted in hope. Einstein says imagination will take you everywhere. Uh, I'm sorry, logic will get you from A to B, but it is imagination that takes you everywhere. This is a drawing um, that was done by my son. Uh, he was an artist, and um, you'll see a few uh, pieces of this. You'll also see quite a number of his pieces in the talk. I think it is silencing the quiet, quieting the silence, in a session later this afternoon that I'll take part in. Uh, so please come. All right. So again, from Rabbi Sachs, never take language lightly, implies the Torah, for it was through language that God created in the natural world, and through language we create and sustain our social world. Covenant is the word that joins heaven and earth, the word spoken, the word heard, the word affirmed and honored in trust, and for that reason, Jews were able to survive exile. They may have lost their home, their land, their power, their freedom, but they still had God's word, the word he said he would never break or rescind. The Torah, in the most profound sense, is the word of God, and Judaism is the religion of holy words. Language in Judaism is the basis of creation, revelation, and the moral life. It is the air we breathe as social beings, hence the statement in Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So Judaism emerged as an answer to the series of questions. How can we, how, how can finite humans being be, human beings be connected to an infinite God? How can they be connected to one another? How can there be cooperation, collaboration, collective action, 
families, communities, and a nation without the coercive use of power? How can we form relationships of trust? How can we redeem the human person from his or her solitude? How can we create collectively liberty such that my freedom is not bought at the cost of yours? The answer, through words. Words that communicate, words that bind, words that honor the divine one and the human other. So Rabbi Sachs asks, how can we connect to each other and to the divine? And a big part of it is our perspective, what we choose to notice and how we choose to listen. So I challenge you to choose the hero inside the story. I challenge you to notice the hero in yourself and in others and recognize, ask yourself, where is the hero within the story? What's the evidence of success, the success of the hero? The person in the tragic story, in the trauma story, and the person in the hero story are exactly the same. It's how you choose to listen. It's what you choose to notice. So I'd like to go on to hope. I call this hope too. And by the way, this is um, a painting of Chagall. So Gary Snyder um, is a psychologist and in the 90s developed hope theory. Um, and he says hope is the belief that the future will be better and that you have the power to make it so. Um, and hope, Snyder says, hope reflects the perceived capacity to generate roots to desired goals called pathway thinking, along with the associated motivational thoughts to those paths called agency thinking. So here is hope. Um, we may not have time to go through all of this, but I do want you to notice you know, that hope consists of agency. I can do it. Um, and pathways, I have optional ways, many ways to get there. So when we have hope, change can happen. So first of all, all change is self-change. A primary tenant for helping people grow and change is change is self-change. As saying goes, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So, really take this to heart. <laughs> you can't make change happen. You can't get people to do things. Um, you don't have to come up with the answers because you probably don't know the best ones. And your job is to, if helping people, even help yourself, is to dance the dance of change with people and not wrestle them because wrestling never works. And I, in my, when I'm not here, my professional life, I'm training clinicians, behavioral health clinicians, medical um, personnel, and social service professionals, a lot of educators also. And I often hear, how do I get my patients to do this? How do I make my clients blah, blah, blah? And if I could take those expressions out of the vocabulary, I would do so immediately. So when it comes to helping others, you can 
um, we, we often think if we could just make people see, then they'd change if they had insight or if they had knowledge. If people just knew, then they'd change. We think if people had skills, if we could just teach them how to do it, they'd change. And lastly, we think, well, maybe we could just give them hell. If we can just make people feel bad or afraid enough, then they would change. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't work. Key principle two, people are experts of themselves. Um, and this is a quote from um, Terry Pratchett, who was uh, deceased, but he was um, a fantasy writer knighted by the Queen of the UK. He says, um, each person is the expert of themselves. After all, when you seek advice from someone, it's certainly not because you want them to give it. Principle number three, and this is a big one for anybody in public health or social services. We think if we just give enough ICE information, communication, and education, um, communication is billboards, information are brochures, and education is sitting people down and telling them what to do. We just think, ah, they'd do it, and we fail in our thinking if we think it's just about information, education, and communication. To change, people need to feel respected, accepted, heard and understood, and free to exercise choice. So, remember, a hero resides in each person. People are experts of themselves. They already have within much of what is needed for change. And a person's own arguments for change are more persuasive than whatever you could possibly tell them. So to help, ask people for their own insights. Evoke their knowledge. Assume that they have skills and do your best to enhance efficacy. Now, one idea, crucial idea, I did present this yesterday. One crucial idea to note and embrace is the difference between goals and outcomes. A goal is the what. An outcome is the so what. Goals like lose 20 pounds are an abstraction. 20 pounds, 19 pounds, 22 pounds, 17 pounds, it's a number. Going to Israel with the grandchildren is an outcome. It is the difference that losing 20 pounds and getting healthy makes. So if you want to help people change, or even yourself, focus on the outcomes, what difference it will make in life, before you define your goals. Because it is outcomes that drive change, not goals. Goals are important later down the road. So. Let's talk about the language of change. How do people change and why do they change? For first of all, why people change? They change because they want to. They believe they have the ability. They have reasons to do it. They recognize the benefits and they have a need. It's important and urgent. How do people change? Because they make a commitment. I will do it. They take steps, and they, they get activated. So if you're trying to make a person change and say, you know, I know I should lose weight, but I'm big boned, and you jump in wealth, well, how about this? That is not going to work. There's no indication that people are want to change, that they're ready to change, that they can change, and that's important and urgent. You need to fuel the fire of change before anybody is ready to take a step 
Um, so this is a piece of art from my son, and I'll be talking about it and him a little bit uh, this afternoon. So how to help others change. Um, another quote from uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, it follows that in Judaism, listening is a deeply spiritual act. To listen to God is to be open to God. One of the greatest gifts, often the greatest gift we can give someone is to listen to them. So um, I, I want to share with you what um, Rabbi Sachs says uh, about change and about listening and being fully present to someone and the power of, that that can impart. He says, as chief rabbi, I was involved in resolving a number of highly intractable, intractable aguna cases, situations in which a husband was unwilling to give his wife a get so she could remarry. We resolved all these cases, not by legal devices, but by the simple act of listening, deep listening. Parenthetically, I call it fierce listening. In, he says, in which we were able to convince both sides that we had heard their pain and their sense of injustice. This took many hours of total concentration and a principled absence of judgment and direction. Eventually, our listening absorbed the acrimony and the two sides were able to resolve their differences together. Listening is intensely therapeutic. Before I became chief rabbi, whoops. Before I became chief rabbi, I was head of our rabbinical training seminary, Jews College. There in the 80s, we ran one of the most advanced practical rabbinics programs ever devised. It included a three-year program in counseling. The professionals we recruited to run the course told us that they had one precondition. We had to agree to take all the participants away to an enclosed location for two days. Only those who were willing to do this would be admitted to the course. We didn't know in advance what the councils were planning to do, but we soon discovered. They planned to teach us the method pioneered by Carl Rogers known as non-directive or person-centered therapy. This involves active listening and reflective questioning, but no guidance on the part of the therapist. As the nature of the method became clear, the rabbis, these are rabbis in training, began to object. It seemed to oppose everything they stood for. To be a rabbi is to teach, to direct, to tell people what to do. The tension between the counselors and the rabbis grew almost to the point of crisis. So much so that we had to stop the course for an hour while we sought some way of reconciling what the counselors were doing with what the Torah seemed to be saying. That is when we began to reflect for the first time as a group on the spiritual dimension of listening, the Shema Yisrael. The deep truth between, behind person-centered therapy is that listening is the key virtue to a religious life. That is what Moses said, saying throughout Devarim, if we want God to listen to us, we have to be prepared to listen to him. 
And if we learn to listen to him, then we eventually learn to listen to our fellow humans. The silent cry of the lonely, the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the people in existential pain. When God appeared in, to King Solomon in a dream and asked him what he would like to be given, Solomon replied, Lev Shomea, literally a listening heart to judge the people. The choice of words is significant. So Solomon's wisdom lie, at least in part, to his ability to listen, to hear the emotion behind the words, to sense what was being left unsaid, as well as what was said. It is common to find leaders who speak, very rare to find leaders who listen. But listening often makes the difference. Listening matters in a moral environment as insistent on human dignity as Judaism. The very act of listening is the form of respect. And Carl Rogers says, People are most able to change when they feel free not to. The key to supportive connection is acceptance and unconditional positive regard. Unconditional positive regard. And I want to emphasize that acceptance, unconditional acceptance, does not mean that you approve. And it doesn't mean you agree. It means you honor the truth that that person perceives for themselves. And so what do you imagine I say to someone who says, I smoke? The first thing I say is not, really? How yucky. Gross. That's what I think. Uh, well, don't you know that causes lung cancer? It's expensive. It says it's on every pack of cigarettes. Don't do it, it'll kill you. I say, what do you like about it? What do you like about it? The person says it makes me relax. Okay. Give me something to do with my hands when I go to a party. Okay. And my second question is, well, I'll tell you actually what my second question is using an example. I am very blessed to work with a lot of people around the world, and one big group I work with are Seventh-day Adventists. They're Shabbos keepers, so guess what day we meet? Sunday morning. They don't go to church then. They're in church on Saturday. Um, and I say to them, with the smoking example, okay, makes you relax, helps you give can something to do. You don't smoke at church. What do you do? How do you manage to do something else? besides smoke when you go to church. And you don't smoke at the movies. What's helping you do that? And so we're identifying in a very, very real way what strengths people do possess. It's finding the hero within the person. And when the teen is busted and comes to the counselor because they've been dealing dope at school, what's the first question we ask? Are you kidding? You want to go to jail? We ask, what makes you a good dope dealer? Kid's never been asked that. He's, the kid has never felt acceptance, unconditional acceptance. 
The kid thinks and says, well, I pay attention to what my customers want. And he says, I deliver on time. And he says, oh, I know I have good stuff. Only he doesn't say stuff, he says something else starting with an S and an H. And what it turns out from that unconditional acceptance, the kid realizes, you know what? I'm actually a good businessman. This is a true story. And 15 years later, the counselor who used that kind of approach had a car that needed work, and he took the car into the dealer. And while he was waiting for his car, he was wandering around looking at the new cars, and the manager comes up to him and says, can I help you? The counselor says, no, I'm waiting for my car to get fixed. And I'm just looking around. And, the, and the, the manager says, hey, wait, aren't you Mr. So-and-so? The counselor says, yeah. And the manager said, you saved my life. Remember me? I'm the kid who was dealing dope. And you helped me recognize that I actually was a good businessman. And I dropped out of the gang. And I stopped selling dope. And I got my life together. And I'm proud. I have a wife and I have two kids I love and that I support by doing work that doesn't get me in jail or killed. That's seeing the hero within. And that is positive acceptance, unconditional positive regard. What makes you a good dope dealer? I'm curious. We need to think differently. No labels, no judgment. The, he doesn't want to change. She's manipulative. He's got an antisocial personality. Get rid of it. Just get rid of it. Oops, I, I, I said yesterday I want to get rid of the word just, and I'm guilty of it. We all have to learn. All right. So what are the reactions to being listened to? We're understood. We're more open. We're accepting. We feel engaged. We feel more powerful. We are hopeful and comfortable. We have to do more than active listening. We need to do fierce and strategic listening. It is suspending the self-oriented, reactive thinking and opening one's awareness to the unknown and the unexpected. And I want to say that, the, that you appreciate that people do dopey things, they do goofy things, and they do things that aren't good for them. But every behavior is a response to a stimulus at the moment that kept a person alive or safe, even the kid who joined the gang, to deal drugs. It was adaptive behavior that kept the kid alive. It becomes maladaptive later. But recognize that every behavior we indulge in initially serves a purpose. So, how do we help people? We evoke the hero within. We express curiosity and acceptance. We evoke the person's own perspectives. And what makes you a good dope dealer? What do you do to relax when you aren't smoking? Or on Shabbos when you're in shul? 
amplify change talk and open the door for possibilities. So recognize that what you respond to, you amplify. If you want people to talk about their problems, then ask about their problems. Oh, what are the barriers? How come you're doing that? Sustain talk. Why are you stuck? That will sustain the problem talk. Change talk, hope talk creates hope. It creates change. This is one of my favorite slides. I call it the no, no, don't do it slide. I say avoid being the hungry fish going after the fat, juicy worm. Remember we talked about negativity bias. We're hardwired for negativity, for what the problems are. We don't want to go there. What happens is when we hear people's problems, we go, oh, how come that's happening? When did it start? How did it start? We want to diagnose and we want to assess. It doesn't help change. Just because we get invited to a problem party, I'm so tired. I want to work out, but I'm so tired. Why are you so tired? No, don't go there. Say, oh, really? What makes you want to work out? What benefits? What do you think you'll get out of it? What difference will it make in your life? How important is it to you to do that? Who else will notice? Just because you get invited to a problem party doesn't mean you have to accept the invitation. This is Mary Oliver, um, poet, Instructions for Living a Life. Pay attention. Be astonished and tell about it. Pay attention to the people around you. Be astonished by their strength, by their courage, and tell about it. Gain a toehold or a handhold wherever and however you can. This is a joke, but it's not funny. My doctor told me to start my exercise program very gradually. Today, I drove past a store that sells sweatpants. That is the hero within. It's a joke, and I would invite you not to laugh. I would invite you to embrace the hero in the person who chooses to identify where is the store that sells the sweatpants because that is the starter step to change. Go from strength to strength. Uh, be the scientist and subject. Be curious instead of certain. Be kind to yourself and others. Have fun. It's simple, but not easy. Practice. And Embrace hope and possibility through your language. I appreciate your attention. It is an honor to be here. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.